Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Hari Asofsky. Dan Reese. Brian Daly. David Silverman. Tina A. Bear. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. We're back. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our last interview of the day. We are starting this while we were scheduled to start it at uh, 7.15. So much like the airlines, we're late. It's 7.20. And so, but I do have a very pleasant uh, grouping of people here. And they just got done presenting at the Climate Resilience and Adaptation Policy Options from Retreat to Infrastructure Reinvestment. So just quick question here before we get into the bias. You came up with that title. I think that would be me. Tina, that title <laughs> is way too long. <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a mouthful. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I think it'll make for an interesting. Gives me some questions here. So anyway, look, before we get started, I think we definitely need to get to know our panel. So, you know, I think I'm going to turn things around a little bit. Tina, since you're the moderator, let's start with you. Where do you work? What do you do? I am a commercial real estate attorney at the Stone Pigman Law Firm in New Orleans, Louisiana. Excellent. And David? I'm a partner at Ansel Glink here in Chicago, practicing in local government real estate development, and economic development. And Brian? Uh, I am not a lawyer. I'm an urban planner with the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, or CMAP. Excellent. And Dan? I am the chief counsel for the Louisiana Office of Community Development Disaster Recovery Unit, uh, which handles the state response to disasters for long-term community recovery. I understand that we have a dean present from one of our uh, major law schools in the country, Dean Osofsky. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? You sure did. I'm Hari Osofsky. I'm the dean of Penn State Law and the School of International Affairs in University Park, Pennsylvania, where we are doing legal education for a changing society. Excellent. So we've got a pretty detailed discussion as I understand it. So what I'm going to do is just quick get the 50,000 foot from our moderator, Tina, just in general, what, uh, what topics were discussed during the panel? So we covered some interesting case studies from the Chicago area and southern Louisiana and talked about instances where retreat was a better option or uh, actually reinvesting in property. And then Adina Sosky then kind of went in depth and talked more about um, adaptation litigation and how, how that affects uh, what we all talked about. Okay, so we've got this uh, this interview divided into basically two main parts. It's the litigation and the policy side of it. So uh, being that is the jump off point with the dean. So let's let's get into the litigation. Let's start there. So I should just make the disclaimer that I am talking on behalf of myself and not um, expressing views of Penn State here. Um, so my presentation really focused on um, the ways in which courts are playing an important role in framing adaptation policy. Climate change litigation has grown massively over the last decade in the United States. Um, we've had 888 cases filed in the United States involving climate change and over 265 around the world. Um, only a small portion of those cases in the United States have focused on adaptation. Most of them have been focused on mitigation. Um, and um, But there's an emerging set of adaptation cases that may continue to grow as, as the, the impacts of climate change worsen. Um, so I don't know if you want me to go into a little bit of 
Well, a little bit. So I'm unfamiliar with the term adaptation as it's, as it's being used here and then mitigation. What are, the t- what are the differences between those two? Of course. So mitigation is about efforts to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. So to stop the things that are causing climate change. Um, those emissions come from the power sector, the transportation sector, um, and then a number of other sectors, but those are two of the biggest. Adaptation is about responding to those impacts, dealing with the problems that are being caused by those impacts. And then there's actually an additional category now um, that's part of the Paris Agreement called loss and damage, which are that there are some impacts that are so bad that we can't adapt to them. Okay, so let's transition into policy. I know that the United States is falling back from the, the Paris Climate Agreement, and so let's transition there. And who, I'm looking for a volunteer. Who wants to go first? Talk a little bit about the policy side. You know, Brian, I think you should. I because can, actually, I no, can do Paris if you need me to. But I, I do. But no, Brian has a very interesting Good. perspective on this, especially since sure. we are in Chicago and he is with the regional planning agency and you sure. operate at a high policy sure. level there. Sure. So uh, CMAP is the official regional planning agency for Northeastern Illinois. We plan for the seven counties centered around Chicago. We operate at a couple of different scales. So we do regional comprehensive planning, uh, long-term plans for transportation, land use, economic development, housing, and the natural environment. Uh, We're working right now on a comprehensive regional plan called Onto 2050 that will be uh, completed in the fall of 2018. Uh, But our regional plans are all implemented at the local level. So we also have a program where we work with local communities to do smaller scale local plans that help implement the vision of our regional plans. A big part of the regional planning work that we're doing now is looking at the likely impacts of climate change on Chicago area communities, uh, including increased precipitation leading to stormwater problems and a few other things. Uh, So we're working with five communities to develop a a pilot approach to community vulnerability assessments that can then inform their local plans and any subsequent regulations that come out of that. Okay, so just in terms of severity, so I did do a little homework before this interview, and I was kind of looking at some of the temperature, sort of the the climate in terms of temperature change. Uh, Some of that was uh, dovetailed with corresponding CO2 graph indicators. And what I discovered was that at least uh, where they're measuring it, there seems to be over the last, I'd say, 30, 40 years, about a degree and a half of warmth overall. And I guess that's uh, calculated worldwide. And so now I'm from Colorado originally, and a degree and a half of weather change really isn't a big deal. But I understand uh, when you average that over the globe, there's going to be some effects. You're talking about the effects and some of the factors that we need to be looking at. So how severe is a degree and a half of climate change uh, in terms of temperature being raised? I'm not a scientist, but I will. (laughs) But I'll play one on TV or on the radio. I mean, I think it depends on the environment in the first place. Um, the, the, I think the effects are not consistent across space. But in, in a region like Chicago, we could have some significant issues. Um, but the bigger issues are not just heat issues. Um, in Chicago, we're grappling with a lot of stormwater issues, um, with flooding. Um, I live in an area where um, we had a microburst storm Um, that was just very unusual, Um, at least 10 inches of rain in an hour. That is very unusual for this part of the country. So um, flooded basements, so communities have to adapt, and that's one of the adaptation issues, is how do communities adapt to a changing environment? 
Um, how do they combat it through the regulatory framework? So Brian was talking on a macro scale as to what CMAP's doing. My part of our presentation today looked at a micro example of a community, a near north suburb, Glenview, um, that participated in a federal program that basically acquires property, demolishes the house on the property, and puts the property in a restrictive covenant so that it can never be used again. And we got into the details of that because the flood insurance program, which was the typical avenue that people used to um, deal with damaged property as a result of flooding, is a very expensive program. And areas like where I was talking about in Glenview that have frequent flooding problems um, might be better treated with just moving people out. And um, Dan, you certainly got into that on a macro scale in Louisiana. So yeah. I think so my, my aspect came from the standpoint of having been involved in disaster recovery for the past 13 years uh, since Hurricane Katrina and Rita and after we then f formed the disaster recovery unit. Um, and essentially seeing the, the evolution uh, of the state and federal mindset really to looking more and more uh, at, as part of disaster recovery, the preventative measures that can be done, uh, can be taken in order to reduce the amount of flooding, for instance, that any of these uh, communities might be experiencing. We can't control from a policy standpoint uh, in the immediate future the weather events, but we can address how are we handling them and anticipating them. And so, from a from both a policy and ec economic standpoint you do want to try and do that and not abandon areas that are productive important areas uh, of the united states but at the same time you do ultimately come to a recognition that there might be areas that that are in such a risk uh, factor that it does make sense to no longer be f pouring funds into that and how do you deal with that? Um, we do have a community in southern Louisiana called Isle de Jean Charles, uh, which uh, was one of Louisiana's projects selected by HUD in, a, uh, in its National Disaster Resiliency Competition. Uh, and that project is to serve as a template project on how to move an entire community. So we're looking at, at 30 to 40 homes that need to be relocated. They don't just want to be given a house elsewhere somewhere in, in the area. They want to be a community. And how do you accomplish that both from a practical standpoint and all the legal issues that you come upon in that, such as title problems, uh, who is an owner, who is an occupant, who's going to be getting you know new housing support, things like that. So that comes into the retreat part of the title of your presentation, Climate Resilience and Adaptation Policy Options from Retreat to Infrastructure Reinvestment. So at some point, you know, you're talking about you have to make that decision whether or not you're going to reinvest. But I have kind of an interesting follow-up question on that. So communities are getting together and they're looking at, boy, this area seems to really get clobbered by hurricanes and, you know, tidal surge. And, and we seem to ha be having to rescue people and uh, rebuild these houses a lot. So uh, insurance is getting harder to get. And so who is making that decision? And I guess um, part of the question is who's making that decision and 
is it the I guess the government's responsibility to you know re I guess reimburse people that are living in some high risk zones? I mean, at some point, are some people assuming the risk for that? I'm I'm getting signaled here from the deed. So this is actually, there's been litigation over these kinds of questions in the adaptation litigation space. So some of the cases have been about governments not taking climate impacts into account in the ways in which they're planning and pushing governments to take those impacts into account. So, for example, there was a case in Miami um, dealing with the fact that their stormwater system was going to be inundated. And actually here in Chicago, there was an insurance case which was ultimately withdrawn um, that, that was basically arguing that the metropolitan region hadn't been dealing well enough with stormwater, um, and that was causing insurance costs to be higher than they should. Um, so um, insurers actually have brought litigation a- around these kinds of issues. And to me, that one of the most interesting cases that deals with this money allocation question that you're talking about um, is a case in New Jersey. So um, there's a legal doctrine in property law known as takings. The basic idea from it is mm-hmm. that if a government takes away your property, they have to compensate you. Well, this case in New Jersey said that when you determine what compensation is required, you have to take the positive benefits that the landowner gets from climate change adaptation into account. And so they actually gave these landowners whose land was being taken away $1 in compensation because of the benefits they were getting from this coastal restoration project. Okay, so that that's interesting. So it's uh, that's where it's coming from is that basically the government is saying you can no longer live here because we don't want to reinvest in this community. We don't want to rescue people out this far. So I guess that's another really interesting question. Well, actually, from our standpoint, the Isle de Jean Charles project, actually, the community itself had reached this conclusion and came it so it was part of the application to hud saying we want to be moved so this is a voluntary process on the part of isle de jean charles is the recognition that we used to live on on an island the size of manhattan and we now have 40 homes all right and so if you if you look at the satellite maps from the 1960s to today you see that 2000 square miles is gone all right, of Louisiana coastline, and that will unhampered continue and accelerate. All right, and with all of that land that disappears, increases the impact of every storm that comes in. It also drives up the risk of oil and gas production, which services the United States and all the seafood, because those marshlands that are going is where the seafood that America enjoys is born. Interesting, interesting. So, as you guys are all aware, uh, you know the United States has a lot of laws dealing with the environment. I, I just looked a few up. This is definitely not my area of expertise, but I looked at the Clean Air Act, the uh, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, a, a bunch of others. And so, I'm guessing if I if I did a poll around the table here, uh, the the consensus would be the United States is not doing enough, not only for the environment, but also in terms of dealing with the extreme consequences of uh, what's going on with environmental changes. Uh, some of them you know, maybe being driven by man-made events, some of them just being driven by nature itself. So I guess because the panel was about that, whether or not you do your reinvestment, how are the laws holding up? Are the laws keeping up with the changes as you guys are seeing them? Does the United States need to do more in terms of that? Let's uh, let's go around. Who wants to go first? Is so we can be openly political on this. I, I just I'm asking the question. I mean, it's we're well, lawyers. no. I think it's I, I think it's an implicitly political question, and that's fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think in our current in 
perhaps some of our one of the panelists or more of the panelists will disagree with me. I think in our current political climate, there is not a lot of initiative on the environmental front. I think in the previous administration, you saw a tremendous amount of initiative on the environmental front. And I do think the United States actually does have a pretty rich statutory and case law history in, environment, in the environmental realm that can be used very effectively to deal with a lot of the problems we're now seeing and anticipate to be seen in the future. So I'll put you down so, in the, uh, the checkbox that goes, we need to do a little more? Yes, Okay. definitively. And who's next? Well, I don't think I'll disagree that we need to do more, but I, but I want to give a somewhat more nuanced picture, which is that part of the complexity here isn't only about how much regulation you have, but about the fact that different levels of regulation matter here. So federal regulation, state regulation, local regulation, and then a lot of the problems, particularly adaptation problems, are regional. But some of the other energy issues are as well, right? So our energy markets in the United States, for example, are regional markets that don't really follow state lines. And so when you're talking about what will be effective, it's not just a matter of more and less. It's about how you bring different levels of government together effectively and work with stakeholders effectively in order to address problems. And I think one of the places that law really falls down, which is not just a more or less question, is that law deals poorly with fast-moving science and technology. And this happens in the environmental realm, in the energy realm, in the health realm, in the cyber realm. And so there are often ways, and, and this is something we're working on actually in a project at Penn State under our, in our new Center for Energy Law and Policy, there are ways in which multi-stakeholder groups among industry and government and nonprofits can work together with universities to come up with things that are actually better for industry and better for the environment through really constructing policy that deals better with evolving technology. I want to jump off on that for one second, because I think it's a really important point. I think, and this goes back to how much initiative is behind doing things, because I think the coordination between various levels of government is a very important point. And I think certain administrations would take a more proactive role with that. I think right now what you're seeing is regional government doing more than perhaps the federal government serving as an organizing entity for those governments on a broader national scale. So you see Chicago, for example, that is actually serving as a model for San Francisco on climate adaptation, regulations dealing with climate change. So again, that's happening here at a, a regional level, but it doesn't seem to me right now that there's any national organizing principles in play. Yeah. I also think that uh, talking about this in terms of different scales of action and different scales of government is really important. You know, one of the points that Dina Sofsky made in her presentation was that people think about climate change in terms of international action and treaties and things like that. Um, so whether or not those actions are happening internationally or at the federal level, at the local level, a government is making a decision about where they're going to site key facilities. They're making a decision about what kind of stormwater regulations they're going to put in place. And all those decisions are being made as the climate is changing and will continue to change. So uh, our goal is to equip those local governments with as much information and the best data and the best guidance to best practices that they can have uh, so that they're making those decisions uh, based on what's really happening on the ground. Uh, we're partnering on our project uh, with the American Planning Association and the University of Illinois, and that's going to help us sort of develop guidance for how planners and 
village government officials and city councilors uh, can keep climate change in mind as they're making these key decisions. Now, from my standpoint, again, I'm, I've, I've been coming from the, from the position of disaster recovery and the recovery after events. And I actually have seen, I, I, I perceive that there actually has been an evolution in that aspect. It's in the response to events. And instead of just repairing what's been damaged, I have seen a greater opportunity coming from the federal government to the state and local levels, which every every area is not the same. And what it needs from a geographic standpoint and how how the environment might be impacting it is not the same and can't can't take a lockstep approach. And so starting with the National Disaster Resiliency Competition that HUD issued, and now even this past spring, we have uh, an appropriation from Congress allowing resiliency and mitigation efforts at the state level to be designed at the state level, you know, so that we can approach things from what is best to address the environmental effects in our area. Well, I just have one last question for you guys. We're running out of time. And that is just for some contact information. I think very interesting discussion. And obviously, these podcasts are being produced for other people that were either in attendance or couldn't make it to to the ABA annual meeting. So if our listeners want to reach out, how can they find you? Start with the dean. Hi, Haryusovsky. You could reach me at Penn State at hmo8 at psu.edu. All right. How about you, Dan? For me, if you Google Dan Reese disaster, actually, that will pop up my name. Uh, it's dan.reese, R-E-E-S, at la.gov. All right. And Brian? Uh, I'd suggest checking out the CMAP website, which is cmap.illinois.gov. My email is bdaily, B-D-A-L-Y, at cmap.illinois.gov. And David? Yeah, I would go to anselglink.com, A-N-C-E-L. G-L-I-N-K dot com. And then my email address is dsilverman at anselglink.com. And last but not least, our moderator, Tina. I would also go to stonepigman.com, S-T-O-N-E-P-I-G-M-A-N. And my email address is T-A-Bear, and that's French. So the spelling is T-H-E-B-E-R-T at stonepigman.com. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode, but I want to thank our guests for joining us and our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. Thank you. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Uh